Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. Today we're going to put you behind the controls of a B-24 Liberator, one of thousands built by the U.S. for the purpose of delivering bombs to German factories which were producing weapons built to advance Hitler's goals to dominate all of Europe. It's the winter of 1944, and Charles Stanley and his crew are on yet another bombing run, knowing that with each mission, their chances of survival are growing dimmer. During World War II, the U.S. 8th Air Force lost over 26,000 men on these bombing runs. An additional 28,000 survived bailing out or crash landing, becoming prisoners of war. 10,561 planes were shot down by the Germans. The average number of missions flown before being blasted out of the sky was 14. Their final flight was their 13th flight. Today you'll meet author and historian Chuck Stanley, the son of pilot Charles Stanley, who has put together one of the most engrossing stories of World War II that I've ever read, an escape story that involved his father and 17 fellow airmen who were shot down and trapped behind enemy lines in Yugoslavia. Their only path of escape? The blizzard-swept Daneric Alps, which separate the Balkan Peninsula from the Adriatic Sea. Other downed bomber crews enter the story as well, and each has their own unique story as well. But it's much more than a story of survival and escape. It's a story of the American spirit, the girl back home, the young men who went to war and in many cases never came back, the desperate plight of the ravaged people of Eastern Europe, the sacrifices of peasants who risked their lives to save American crews, the role that the underground and British agents played in helping downed airmen escape, and the toll that World War II exacted upon millions of people. It's a powerful reminder of the sacrifice it has taken to preserve freedom in much of the world today. Today's book, Lost Airmen, The Epic Rescue of World War II U.S. Bomber Crews Stranded Behind Enemy Lines. Chuck Stanley, it's great to have you with us today. What a great book. This was a real page turner. I've enjoyed it all completely. It's amazing the story that you've done and the amount of research that you've done. Tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and then tell us about the Lost Airmen. Who were they and how did you discover their story? Well, I, I, when I first discovered the story, I was still working. Uh, I was a, a civil servant for New York State. And um, we discovered the story when we first started reading, we meaning my brothers and I, uh, when we start, started reading the, the letters my parents sent back and forth to each other during World War II. And uh, we discovered there was a pretty good story in there and, and decided we would learn more about what had happened during the war, and it just sort of took off. What sort of research did you conduct, and how long did it take you to put this book together? Well, the first thing we did was track down my father's crewmates, um, but um, uh, pretty soon it evolved into discovering the story of what happened in, uh, in Yugoslavia. See, my, my father was shot down twice. For most of uh, my childhood, I thought the first time was the real adventure, where um, he bailed out over Romania, and there's, there's kind of an interesting story there. But um, it turned out that, that the second bailout was even more interesting. And uh, we started tracking down the, um, uh, the other airmen who had been um, downed about the same time and ended up in this uh, town in Bosnia called Sansky Most. I'd like you to start with the human interest side of this story. Um, the girl back home and the family what kind of family did your dad come from, and who was the girl back home? Well, the, uh, my father's background uh, was that his, his father was the head of a, uh, of a natural gas pump station in, in, in nowhere, Pennsylvania, about 50 miles north of Pittsburgh. And uh, so, uh, luckily, uh, that family was pretty much untouched by the Great Depression because everybody needs natural gas. He met my mother, uh, my father met my mother in, uh, in Buffalo while he was training. Uh, they started seeing each other, and, uh, but he only stayed in Buffalo for about a month, and the rest of their uh, courtship was by correspondence. So uh, I get to read uh, basically everything they said to each other uh, for two and a half years when I look at those letters. What swayed him to join the Army Air Force? He... Uh, he was he wasn't a, a a real physical guy in in like the sort of football player sense. He was he was a smart guy, and uh, he he didn't want to spend the war camping in tents and slogging through mud. He he decided he would go for the uh, 
uh, sort of the highest status specialty that he could, which was being a pilot. Uh, I think people today don't realize how how new aviation was in those days and, and what a glory job it was to be a pilot. This is only 15 years after Lindbergh had, had crossed the Atlantic and people were still setting uh, um, airspeed records um, and, and become famous in newspapers and, and magazines and, and radio. So um, uh, it was it was quite quite a big deal to be a pilot in those days, and, and uh, that's what every boy grew up wanting to be. You had a lot of interesting anecdotes uh, in the story. One I thought was interesting, these guys went through uh, a lot of training, uh, and they were pretty well culled out in terms of their skills. Um, they wanted to, if the guy was going to be sitting in the pilot seat, there were a lot of reasons he was going to be there, uh, even compared with his co-pilot. He had to be a, a leader, and he had to be a guy that they knew would come through in some pretty stressful conditions. I was I was interested in one of the stories about their parachute dr- jump training. None of them ever, I don't think, wanted to bail out of a plane, and they wanted to get it up there, get their job done, and get back home. The parachute jump trainer in, at that point was a woman, and uh, she, they did not do any, but she did one and landed yeah. in a swamp and almost drowned. Yeah, the... Uh, uh... I tried to get all of these little aspects of, of the war in, into the story, and 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 one of the one of the important aspects of the war, I think, that's often forgotten is the role of women, and and women did all all sorts of non-combat yep. things, including uh, this parachute trading. So this this poor woman who ended up in the swamp was was apparently expendable. You know, they they had spent <laughs> you know they spent eighteen months training these pilots. They they couldn't have them. Uh, practice bail out and and turn an ankle or break a leg they were they were too valuable so so they sent the poor woman up to, to bail out instead and, and i'll just ruin i forget if this is in the book but but the women who 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 or the 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 pilots who flew the target planes were all women so when the gunners went up there and were practice shooting at targets that were trailing airplanes it was women who were driving them well, apparently they were expendable too. Uh, so they, they played an important, a very important part in the role. And you'll we'll see it when we get to Yugoslavia. They played an extremely important part in the in the underground. The, maybe twenty percent of the the partisan army were, were were women, and some of them were fighting women. When he finally uh, got his wings and and headed overseas, what was the first destination? Well, he he. He was uh, actually pretty lucky. He he um, he took a um, a convoy to, to Great Britain and then was shipped over in a, in a decent boat, not a Liberty boat, but a commandeered um, a passenger liner, French passenger liner. So he actually went in relative comfort compared to a lot of people. But um, he he went by boat. Some of the guys actually ferried planes over, uh, which actually was probably preferable. But um, but he took a ship. So they were they were flying out of a base in London then before they went to Italy, right? No, no, they uh, actually they went through a a, a town um, called Newquay, which is in the western part of England. And uh, but but they did make a stop in London uh, while they were on leave. There they got to experience the Blitz, and and uh, uh, the the worst of it was over. But the Germans were still uh, throwing random uh, uh, rockets over, and my father and his crew. Uh, heard the explosion of one of those rockets while they were in London. Their next destination, if I'm correct, was Italy. Is that correct? At an air base there? Yes, yes. What, what was the situation on the ground, and what was their military objective? Well, the, um, the situation on the ground in Italy is that uh, by then uh, Italy had surrendered, and there was sort of a stagmired front in, in northern Italy. But for the purpose of this story, uh, what matters is that that the uh, Army Air Forces decided that they wanted to station the 15th Air Force in southern Italy for a number of reasons. One reason was that they thought that they'd get uh, better weather in, quote, sunny Italy than, than out of Great Britain. That turned out to, not to be so. But uh, probably the more important reason was that Albert Speer, you know, the, the Fuhrer's uh, armaments uh, czar, uh, had placed... Um, oil refineries um, outside of the reach of the 8th Air Force flying out of Great Britain so that most of the, the Reich's uh, oil supplies at that time were in uh, Silesia, which is um, modern Poland. So they uh, only the 15th could reach them. 
And uh, so their, their main targets were oil targets. Sometimes they attacked uh, uh, communications targets, which we would call transportation targets these days, uh, you know, blocking uh, trains that were supplying the, uh, the Germans on the Eastern Front. How dangerous were the friendly skies at that time uh, over Yugoslavia and the other lands that they had to cross in order to get their bombing missions completed? One of the interesting facets that I discovered, which is that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd interview, I interviewed 40 airmen. Every now and then I'd slip and say, well, you got shot down over Yugoslavia. And they'd, they'd invariably correct me. They didn't get shot down over Yugoslavia. They, they got shot up over Germany and bailed out over Yugoslavia. <laughs> right. So, uh, so uh, often what would happen is they, um, uh, they'd be flying from southern Italy, and if you draw a line um, almost straight north from, from southern Italy, from their bases, to uh, uh, modern-day southern Poland, they cross, the, the line crosses Yugoslavia. So they'd, uh, most of them were hitting oil targets, as I said, got shot up and could only make it to Yugoslavia. If they tried to cross the Adriatic, you know, which is the sea between Italy and, uh, and Yugoslavia, and failed, that would be the end of them. The, the B-24 did not uh, ditch, as they called it, in, in water very well. And they, they did not want to do that. So a lot of them chose to, to bail out over what was known as uh, partisan-held territory rather than attempt it because it was just, it was basically suicide if you, uh, if you tried to crash land in water in those days. It wasn't uncommon for them to get uh, sh- pretty well shot up on missions. Uh, oh, and um, not at all, not at all. And it wasn't uncommon to have mechanical failures. Some uh, some of these crews um, weren't shot down at all. They just their planes failed, and and uh, you know the uh, the mechanics of the time were were famously competent and and worked hard and adopted these planes and knew that the airmen's lives were were in the mechanics' hands. But um, but still, these things. They, they ran these planes till they died, basically. And by the end of the war, there were two crews for every plane. So they just ran the planes uh, uh, till, they, till they were called war worries and just wore out. And uh, there was no avoiding some of this. Yeah, your description of the flak bursts, of the flak that the Germans' uh, anti-aircraft guns would send up is really incredible. You're talking about maybe 250 within that, 250 shrapnel uh, pieces of steel were fly through the shell of that plane uh, if it were within 200 yards of a flak burst. Pretty dangerous stuff when it could take out fuel tanks, it could take out men inside. That was um, wicked stuff. That was that was wicked stuff, and, and you raise another good point. Uh, I think when, when most people think of the air war, they think of uh, 12 o'clock high or, or, or the movies that are about the uh, uh, the 8th Air Force, and, and, and in the early days of the war, the uh, there were both fighters and, you know, on the way back and forth to the target and flak over the target. And, and they didn't dare go uh, face uh, a formation and force. What they would do is, uh, is let, the, uh, let the planes get to their targets, let, let the flak do, do its job, and then try to pick off stragglers because that's, that's all, the re- all the resources they had at the time to, uh, to fight back. By this was late. This was late forty-four. Are we are we around September of nineteen forty-four now? We still haven't been shot down over Romania. That's to come here. Right, right. Yeah, my father arrives in early September, uh, nineteen forty-four. And uh, what was the situation with uh, the German Luftwaffe? Were they pretty much getting thin by that time? They they were definitely thin by that time. And and uh, un- unlike American pilots who were, you know, they. The casualty rates were so high that you had to offer them some hope of survival, and and so we hear about the Memphis Bell, which was the first to be uh, seventeen to to complete twenty five missions, but even at the time my father was flying, they they had uh, lifted it to uh, thirty five missions. Um, but the Luftwaffe pilots flew till they died. I mean, there there was there was no end for them, yeah. um, and and pilots, you know, pilots were important resources. It took it took the Americans eighteen months to to train a pilot and. And you know the Germans didn't have eighteen months. Uh, they, uh, hmm. if, if they got fresh pilots, they sent them up there, pretty cold. Let's let's go through Romania in terms of the the first time they got shot down. What number mission was that for them, and what happened? I think that was, um, I think it was around ten. I, I uh, okay, something like that. But they uh, they go to this target called Blackhammer. 
that there are really two Black Hammers, Black Hammer North and Black Hammer South, and together they comprise the, the largest complex, oil refining complex in Germany. But when I say oil refining, I don't mean like a modern oil refinery. What I mean is that it was a, a plant where the, where the Germans were converting coal into um, synthetic fuel. So uh, by that time, as we know today from, from the uh, modern European crisis and, and Ukraine, that Germany doesn't have its own oil. Uh, so earlier in the war, uh, Romania was its ally and they, and they got their oil from the Romanians. By now, the, the Russians have uh, overrun Ploesti, have liberated um, a couple thousand uh, American um, POWs who had been held by the Romanians because they had been bombing Ploesti. And, uh, and the Germans had lost those, uh, that oil supply. So these, these synthetic fuel plants were everything to the Germans. And without them, uh, they, they couldn't run their airplanes and they couldn't run their tanks. So anyway, my, my father goes up there, he gets shot up again. He makes a decision uh, that I, I think may be unique in the war. He, um, uh, I, I, I've read the stories of, of thousands of, of uh, 15th Air Force pilots who uh, were shot up in this territory. And he's the only one who decided to go to Romania rather than go just across the border to Poland or, or try to get back to uh, Yugoslavia and Italy. And he didn't want to go to Poland for, for a number of reasons. He, uh, the Warsaw Uprising had just happened. It left a bad taste in his mouth. Russian pilots flew drunk, and, and they weren't instructed in the difference between an American plane and, uh, and a German plane, and they were just as likely to shoot you down as welcome you. And as I said, going back across the Adriatic had its own risks. So 99% of the pilots just, just crossed into Poland and, and took their chances. Uh, he went to Romania because he knew that there was an American mission in uh, Bucharest that was repatriating these uh, these former POWs. He had seen some of these guys return uh, to his base um, after they were liberated, so he knew they were there. So so he took a shot, and he just uh, he was right, but he was just barely right. He he was just a couple miles past the uh, Eastern Front when his engines gave out, and he was forced to bail out uh, from under fire. Feet. That was a tense moment that you wrote about. Uh, was his co-pilot at that time named Pleasance? Yes. And I think Pleasance uh, at first didn't want him to try Romania. Pleasance had other ideas. And he also, the um, as I recall, there was a, a heck of a cloud base that they were on top of, and they could not see well. And this this drop, if they were gonna if they were gonna parachute, it had to be exact because the 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 only place where, the, where they could take him in Romania was a pretty tight little area, and they couldn't really. They had a really good guy in there who was who was who was approximating their location. Yes, and I think it was thanks to his skills that they ended up surviving that. Yes, my my father had an exceptional navigator. I'm glad you brought that up because the role of the navigator is probably underappreciated. Uh, yep. They they you know they didn't have satellites back then, so uh, they operated by what was uh, called dead reckoning, which was sort of mm -hmm. a mixture of of science and art. And, it, and and you couldn't just uh, fly in a straight line either, because if you did, you'd, you'd end up over a city and likely over um, flak installations. So you had to, you had to dodge cities, uh, get to where you're going, you know, go off course, get back on course, and, uh, and end, up, and end up where you needed to be. And it was really tricky stuff. And, and yeah, Leo Cohn was an exceptional navigator. Cohn, yeah. As it turned out, uh, of course, the pilot and the co-pilot were the last to go, and they dang near didn't jump in time, but it, as it turned out. That's right. Uh, uh, Plaisance was, was convinced that my father was dead because he bailed out from such a low level. And uh, and he, he couldn't imagine how my father had survived uh, the plane crash that had happened immediately after Plaisance jumped. But yeah. uh, he did, and, and um, he, he did it by uh, basically pulling the ripcord as he was leaping from the Bombay. In other words, he was still in the plane when he yanked that cord. <laughs> Otherwise, he he wouldn't, and and which of course risked being hung up on the plane. Right. So, so it was a darn near thing, and um, and in fact, uh, my my mother regarded his survival as as they were religious people. My my mother regarded his uh, survival as a uh, as a miracle, and if and if a miracle is something that is. Uh, the result of, of something that's extremely improbable. It, it was a miracle um, mm -hmm. because he should not have survived that jump. And in fact, uh, there's a theory that it was actually the 
the crash of the plane and the flames uh, or the heat from the flames of the crash that caught his parachute and saved the drive. So explain Romania and, and how he got out. Yeah, at the time, the, 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 you know, the, the Russians were advancing through there. Uh, my father, it, Romania had been a, a, an Axis ally, so my father wasn't sure what he was going to get when he, when he ended up with Romanian civilians. Um, but the, the people were very friendly to him, very, very good to him. And Romania was a relatively uh, prosperous country compared to Yugoslavia later. And uh, he ended up uh, uh, being treated uh, very well by the local population. I have, I have photos of them in the book, I think, and on my website because they were. It was, it was with upper middle class people, a, a doctor, uh, the mayor of the town, and all that. And uh, they ended up uh, being transported to Bucharest, which was probably, uh, oh, I'd say 150, 200 miles away, partially by truck and partially by uh, one of these German uh, tri-motor um, aircraft. Uh, mm -hmm. JU-52, and ended up in uh, Bucharest uh, exactly as he had planned. And of course, uh, the, the yellow uh, the yellow envelope was delivered back home saying he was lost at that time. Is that correct? So that created a lot of fear. And, indeed. As, as, uh, and actually, you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that this is just about my, fa my father. This is, you know, my father's a good part of the story, but it's not just because he's my father. It's it's because his his story exemplifies what happened to all of them. Uh, you know his training, his uh, and uh, and his being miss missing in action. So and and he's so well documented because I've got those uh, twelve hundred letters. So um, so the reader knows that that each one of these families got a similar telegram, and and each of those families um, took the blow of learning that their their son was missing in action. Yeah, and, and I will also let the readers know that uh, in the middle chapters of this book, you do justice to a lot of the other crews who were downed at the same time that they were. And you go into detail on who some of these guys were and what their experiences were and how and how and if they got out. So you're right. You're not just focusing on, on your dad here. Um, you're trying to there's a lot of a lot of courage and a lot of men and a lot of families being affected by all this, obviously. Uh, but you do a good job highlighting it all and researching it all. Thank you. I, I, I tried to cover every aspect, not just women, but uh, POWs. And, and each chapter has a theme. Uh, with my father, it's basically the not just the adventure, but the training. So everybody knows mm -hmm. what kind of training they went through. Sort of like Band of Brothers. You know, you start Band of Brothers with the training, which is a, an important aspect of, of their story. It shows you what, you know, how they were selected, how, how, how selective it was, and so on. But, uh, you know, each, each crew has... Uh, as their story, a lot of them is about uh, the stress of, of combat and that unique form of of experiencing combat by by flying through fields of flak and just having to sit there and take it, not being able to fight back, not being able to hide, not being able to do anything to affect the outcome. Uh, you just you just had to pray and hope that one of those things didn't hit you. It was I don't think there's been anything like it before or since. How long did it take your dad from the time he uh, was shot down in Romania until he was flying missions again? Well, they sent him to Capri um, for a, a rest camp. Rest camps were important, uh, both in both in England and in Italy. They, uh, the the Air Force had, a, I think, a, a very modern take on courage. Uh, un, unlike the British, where breaking down in combat was considered moral cowardice and and a failure of character. The the uh, Americans had a had a, I think an enlightened uh, view of courage that basically courage was like money, and that you spend a little bit on each mission and and the only way to replenish your your wallet was to to go on a break every now and then, so uh, at least once midway through their tours each each of these crews was was given a week off and they went to uh, Capri or or Naples or Rome I, I even know of one crew that went to uh, to Egypt, hmm. um, so uh, you know, rest rest was important to these guys. Your dad's flying again. When did they get shot down the second time? Right, he he, he flies a couple missions in November, and the, the, you know, there's there's some pretty interesting missions there in, in my view. The uh, one mission he uh, he gets separated from his uh, bomb group in a in a 
that breaks up in in a massive uh, bank of clouds, and uh, so he's alone in the skies over over Germany. Uh, I think the target was Munich, and he ends up close to Berchtesgaden, and and uh, you know for a split second yeah. uh, he he mulls Hitler's bombing Hitler's <laughs> bombing away, right? Hitler home, and. Uh, but he decides he'd better not, because a he shouldn't do that without without permission, and b uh, I don't know if this occurred to him, but it was really heavily defended. That would have that would have been a really yeah. bad idea if he if he'd attempted that. So in, instead, they they found a little railroad junction and dropped their bombs and and just skedaddled home. But it, it's it's just kind of funny that to me anyway that that he sort of had that opportunity <laughs> and passed it up. Probably a good thing. Uh, but then, uh, then he gets sent back to the same target, Blackhammer, on December second, and gets shot up again, loses two engines again. The the other the opposite and, uh, two this time. So this is the opposite two this time, but it's still it's still the same problem of trying to fly a propeller plane uh, with with all the thrust coming from one side of the the uh, the airplane, and they they took turns, you know, the the him and the co-pilot. But this time, this is six weeks later, and. And by now, the um, the uh, Air Force has a better idea of, of what areas in Yugoslavia are held by the partisans. So uh, it's it's uh, it's a better bet to head in that direction. So my father head, heads in that direction, gets uh, gets to a, to an area. He's still got five thousand feet of altitude, and he talks to his navigator, and the navigator says, "Okay, it's it's time to jump." And my father says, basically. Um, well, can we get closer to the coast anyway? We're still 120 miles from the coast. Can, you know, can we walk a little less? And he says, "No, we know we know the partisans are here, so uh, and we got lots of altitude. Remember mm-hmm. what happened last time. So let, let's jump while we had a lot of while we have a lot of altitude. And and it was a good thing that that they did use that they did have that altitude because you know these parachutes were not all that reliable. Sometimes they didn't open on the first yank, and and you needed every. Uh, every foot of it um, when you bailed out in those. And there were no reserve packs in those days. So, now, did he uh, have any of the original crew members with him at this point? Plaisance had um, been injured on landing in Romania, uh, number one. And number two, he had contracted a, a, a amoebic uh, dysentery right. uh, from the food. So he was uh, he was not ready to fly yet. And uh, so he had a new co-pilot, but, but the rest of the guys were still with him. Now they're flying and they get hit with flak. He's uh, they bail out at fifteen thousand. Uh, excuse me, they bail out at five thousand feet. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And and what happened from that point on? And they, you know, they 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 land. They get collected by uh, partisans. And and uh, Leo Cohn was right. They uh, uh, it was the right place to jump. And uh, they're just um, uh, fifteen twenty miles from this uh, important gathering po- point in in. Um, northern central Bosnia, a town called uh, Sansky Most, and they get uh, guided to this gathering point by the partisans, uh, but uh, end up getting stranded there. And as time goes on, uh, all these other crews, I read about 13 crews that, uh, at least parts of which end up in this town. What was the role of the British secret agents in this story? Um, About mid-month, about mid-December, you know the partisans, you know, are are treating them well, but they don't. Nobody seems to be doing anything about trying to get them out. So they send a message uh, through the partisans to uh, British agents who are uh, not far by those standards, say fifty miles in either direction. And three uh, British agents show up, uh, two from the north and one from the south, and, uh, to to help uh, coordinate the the rescue of these guys. The there was a. Um, a pastor outside of town. The, the reason they picked uh, Sansky most as a gathering point is, is a it was relatively safe, and b um, it it had uh, it was one of the f- few flat areas in in Bosnia at the time. Uh, well, still obviously, but I've flown over Bosnia. Bosnia looks roughly like the Adirondacks in New York State. If if your listeners have visited there, so it's it's not the Rockies, but it's uh-huh. it's pretty rugged and. And there, there's not a lot of flat areas there. So, so to, to have a town that's on a, on a, you know, alluvial plain uh, was was rare and a rare opportunity to to get planes and to rescue these guys. And and why couldn't they walk to the coast? It's because they were surrounded by Germans. Um, the Germans were retreating out of out of Greece, and in fact, the uh, Americans were were 
were uh, trying to cut them off. They didn't. They didn't want them to retreat. They wanted to, them to surrender in, in Greece or Yugoslavia. So, uh, but the, the Germans were all over, and, and uh, there wasn't great intelligence on where they were. So it was pretty dangerous to try to walk out uh, to the coast. Although attempts are made about a month later to uh, to walk to the coast. How did the airmen get along with the partisans and the Yugoslavian people in general? And how did they get past the language barrier? Well, they, they actually uh, got along great in, in the beginning. The Yugoslavians loved Americans. They, they loved Americans particularly because uh, they, the Americans had helped uh, Tito escape a, a raid that the Germans had staged on his headquarters in Dravar. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but also because they knew the Americans had, had no um, territorial designs in, in Yugoslavia. They knew the, the, right. the Americans were going to colonize or take over Yugoslavia, whereas the, whereas the British wanted to use it as, as a sphere of influence. So, uh, yeah, they, they loved Americans. Um, how did they get- Everybody distrusted the British right. from Africa right. through You're Europe. Right. Uh, and, and remember, the British are, are fighting the, the Greek communists at, at the same time. And, and the partisans are, are communists. So, you know, what's to stop the British from turning on, on their former allies uh, for, uh, you know, their own interests? And uh, so they, they were wary. But how did they get past the language barrier? They, uh, um, there weren't many, there were, there were a few Yugoslavians uh, who spoke English. And in fact, it, it, it's kind of interesting, I think, as you go through the book, that each of these crews, when, when they end up on the ground, or, or most of them, bumped into people who spoke English in the middle of nowhere in, in Yugoslavia. And it's because so many of them, so many of the Yugoslavians had had uh, crossed the Atlantic, worked in Detroit or some other major industrial center for, for some years, making what to them was a fortune, and then decided to go home to retire. So um, a lot... Uh, it's like present-day Ukraine. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And... Uh, uh, you know, and, and that had happened before World War One. So there were a fair number of English speakers, although not in this, not particularly in this town. But it, but it's 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 really funny how well over half the crews are, are for just forest, and and they they walk into a cabin in the middle of Yugoslavia, and there's an English speaker there. It's it's funny. But the other interesting thing is we we are a a nation of immigrants, uh, especially then, and. Um, or especially then, anyway, in terms of immigrants from uh, from countries with languages that would be useful there, a, a lot of Yugoslavians spoke Italian, and uh, uh, you know Italy's right there, and and Italy has, has had strong interests on, along the Dalmatian coast, and a lot of the airmen were the the sons of uh, German immigrants, or or uh, actually, there's a Czech guy, there's a Slovak guy, uh, uh, airmen, I mean, uh, there's a Ukrainian, there's a um, uh, a couple Polish guys, so uh, basically almost every crew has has a foreign speaker on it, and and that wouldn't happen today among like one in every ten people speaking uh, an Eastern European language, but it happened then, and it was close enough to uh, Serbian Croatian that that they could get along anyway and at least communicate uh, basic needs. We'll return with our interview with Charles Chuck Stanley Jr., last airman right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to Lost Airmen by Chuck Stanley. 
Uh, Chuck, do you have any more dramatic stories from the book you'd like to share? Well, there are, there are dramatic stories on uh, in the air and on the ground, so I'll, I'll give you one of each. Probably the most dramatic story in the air is that of uh, John Wolfe, who uh, again gets shot up over his target and is losing altitude over Yugoslavia. To get as far as, as they can in these propeller planes, he has the... Um, the crew lighten the plane, and as as each of these pilots did. So, uh, you know, they're throwing their uh, gun belts out, their flak jackets, anything that weighs anything, even the radio. And, um, so, the um, B twenty four is divided in half. Uh, it's there's the front of the plane where the pilots and the bombardier and the navigator is, and then there's the back of the plane where basically the gunners are. And uh, so the gunners um, disconnect themselves from from their um, interphones you know it's a headset much like we have today so that they can move about the plane and 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 do that work so when another engine fails wolf realizes that they have to bail out sooner rather than later the guys are off the intercom and they don't hear the order the guys in the front of the plane except for the two pilots bail out but uh, wolf realizes that those guys in the back have not bailed out and they get to an altitude where um it's no longer safe to bail out. So he orders the co-pilot out, and, and then he attempts to crash land his plane uh, basically on the side of a mountain, which is pretty much impossible. Um, and uh, he died uh, trying to save the lives of those three guys in the back. But again, pretty much miraculously, uh, one of them did survive. So he actually succeeded in, in saving the lives of one of those three men. And uh, later on, his, his, um, his navigator sought the Medal of Honor for him, but he didn't get that, but he did get the uh, hmm. distinct, the, the second highest um, medal that the country has to offer. So um, wow. he, he's quite uh, quite a hero. Before you get to your second story, remind me which airfield it was that was one of the recommended places they could land, but it was extremely dangerous because it wasn't a long enough runway for a B-24. Right. It's the island of Vis, which is uh, just off the Adriatic coast, not far from... Um, the port of Split, which you can find on your maps in, um, I think it's modern-day Croatia. Yeah, you did a beautiful job on that. You had they had a couple of very, very experienced pilots, and, um, and maybe it was a pilot and a co-pilot, or maybe it was just two pilots, two planes. They had to ditch on ditches right where they had to they had to crash land, and they had to bring it down there. They described the <laughs> they described that airfield that planes were piled up like used cars. Because once they got these big B-24s in, there wasn't enough room to take off. And a lot of them were, and a lot of them were broken up upon landing because the, the strip was so short and they, would, they were cracking up as they landed them. I was hoping you could relate that story of how these guys decided, hey, man, we're not staying here. We're taking off. Sure. There's a, there's a story in, uh, actually in, in Frank Ambrose's book, The, the Wild Blue, uh, about McGovern. And McGovern ended up on that island, uh, yeah. uh, later Senator George McGovern. And uh, he was told by the British that, that you couldn't uh, fly off uh, that uh, airstrip. The, the airstrip was about half the length of a B-24 airstrip because uh, it, was, it was meant for fighter planes not for, and for transports, not for right. bombers. So, um, so McGovern accepted his word, and so did Stephen Ambrose. But the fact is you could fly off that, if, uh, that strip if, if you did it right. So there's, there's, you know, that, that's a correction for Stephen Ambrose that I give in my book. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, there were two of the pilots who ended up in uh, Sansky Most ended up, uh, or emergency landed on at that airstrip um, in November. And they did it the same day and during the same mission. So um, both these guys end up there. They they. And again, the British told them, you can't take off. And both of them said, yes, I can. And they, and they did. They, <laughs> they, um, they had their flight engineers salvage parts from all these crashed airplanes that were on one side of the airstrip and uh, repaired their planes, got just enough fuel to get back to Italy and um, gunned their engines like race cars, uh, uh, you know, on a drag and kept the pressure and kept the pressure kept on the, the brakes. Pressure on the brakes. So they're, they're juicing. They're juicing the engines while they're keep holding Just the brakes. Just like a drag race, and uh, and and managed <laughs> to take off. And uh, David Blood, who we'll meet later on, decided he would uh, show those limeys a thing or two, and went back and buzzed the flight tower. 
<laughs> Close means fly as close to the ground as you can without, and you know, so that everybody has to duck. So uh, that was that was forbidden, of course, but he did it anyway. He was a wild character. Yeah, there were some there were some wild guys uh, all over World War II in different places at different times. Indeed, blood's mine. The Solomons, uh, some of those pilots around there too. Some of the stories from there, it just cracked oh, me up. Yeah. Like the guys, the guys going up in shorts with a couple of uh, with a couple of handheld bombs and flying low enough over the Japanese base on their surprise attacks that they're just chucking them out of the out of the cockpit. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> What's your second story? Uh, you had a good dramatic story. You said you were going to share. You had one one uh, land and one. Sure. Air. So there comes a point where um, the airmen are no longer welcome. The, you know, the townspeople love them, but after after a time, they the airmen where they're welcome out they um you know there are a lot of them they're conspicuously wealthy they all have 48 gold-backed american dollars in their escape kits or most of them they don't understand the exchange rates they're paying too much for the for the scarce resources that are in the town and they're basically blocking the regular folk out of out of the marketplace because naturally the merchants want to want to sell their goods to the uh rich americans and beyond that, there's the, you know, there are a few cultural things and, and you know, and, and these are communists, remember, and, and you know, there, there's a lot of inequity that these Americans are rich and, and uh, consuming everything. It's, it's, it's against the, the part of partisan code. So, uh, so anyway, after a while, the, the partisans have had enough and they want to they want to send the Americans out and they have a uh, they try to send them to uh, to the coast, as I alluded to earlier. Uh, the attempt fails, and uh, everybody has to turn back. So, so these uh, at least sixty of the eighty some Americans who were in town um, had had gone on this journey, ran into a blizzard, turned around, and came back. Um, eventually, three airplanes are are uh, dispatched from Italy on the request of these British agents, and uh, of course, and, and then there's a story about how um, eighteen of them had to remain behind and my father volunteers to be one of these 18 men because the the, uh, the transports say there isn't enough room on the planes but then the 18 are forced to walk out and and that's where the drama happens because uh, um, they ran into that same um, not same blizzard but the same conditions and um, mm-hmm. and end up stuck in in a um, in a cabin that was probably a loggers cabin uh, again in nowhere and and they run out of food and they run out of Fuel and uh, another blizzard comes, and there's six feet of snow outside, and and the snow becomes so deep that they have to dig out the windows so that they don't suffocate. Two of the partisans who are with them decide that they have to go on. The, there's an officer who uh, is carrying dispatches and and an aide, and uh, for whatever reason he decides he has to press on, and um, so they go out into the storm. And maybe a day later, the the aide comes back because um, they couldn't make it, and they later mm. found the uh, the body of the uh, of the officer frozen to death. Um, but when this aide comes back, he's got a frostbitten foot; mm. he can't walk. And they reach a point that they just have they, meaning the airmen and and the partisans partisan escorts, uh, that they just have to go. They can't stay there. Uh, they'll they'll freeze to death. Uh, they're starved to death. Um, and they just have to try to go, as dangerous as it is. But they can't carry this guy, so they just left him um, to meet right. his fate. I'd call that pretty dramatic. Some of the airmen you write about were captured. How were the POWs treated by the Germans? Well, yes, they. Generally speaking, they were they the captured men were treated well. But if but if you were caught by the SS, they just shoot you. So you you. It's an odd thing uh, to think of in modern times because in the movies they they show that you know Americans are trying to elude capture and all that, but in fact they they were instructed at least in the 15th Air Force if 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 you were shot down over Germany, find an authority that's non-SS um, and surrender. Uh, find find a Luftwaffe officer, find find a policeman, find somebody because if the civilians caught you, they'd kill you, and if the SS caught you, they'd kill you. Um, and it, mm-hmm. and 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 where are you going to go? You're in the middle of Germany. Two of my guys, two of the people I write about, I should say, are um, are found by SS officers and just plain shot. Um, but the guys who who were captured were treated respectfully. 
but I can't say well because the Germans themselves were starving and 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 they didn't have a lot of resources to give to their to the American POWs or the British POWs and it was really the Red Cross that kept these POWs alive with uh, the famous Red Cross packages and sustained them while they were in these camps. Um, as time went on, the the Russians are advancing and. Uh, preparing to liberate the camps, the Germans would evacuate the, the Stalags um, rather than let the Americans fall into the Russians' hands. There's a famous um, episode called the Black March where a uh, POW camp was evacuated and the, uh, the POWs had to um, march across Germany uh, under starvation conditions in the middle of winter uh, without resources and basically scrounging along the way. And again, no, no, nobody bothers to, or at least few of them, bothered to try to escape. There was nowhere to go. Yeah. And if they were caught by civilians, they would be killed. So uh, they were better off with their guards. So yes, I would say the Germans actually did the best they could, but it wasn't very good. What were the final days when your father and his crew were able to get out and get the freedom? How did that happen? When did, how did it go down? Well, they uh, after after they left this cabin, I t I told you about. There was uh, they still had um, half the distance to go to the Adriatic, uh, but they uh, they would walk uh, from basically encampment to encampment uh, with the underground, and uh, finally ended up uh, in what we would consider to be civilization, and uh, reached scene and and split and uh, um, there was a mission and at split. Um, manned by the OSS, and uh, they were transported by um, uh, a crash British uh, crash boat, which is their equivalent of a, uh, a PT boat, and taken to Beast. And from there, they were uh, transported by uh, C-47 uh, to Italy. And did he try to fly again after that? Uh, he he was prepared to have to fly again. He didn't realize that, that he would be sent home. And in fact, I was the one who informed him how he got or why he was sent home. Um, he never did understand it. All of a sudden they told him, you're going home. And he said, okay. Hmm. Uh, but uh, it turned out that it was, there, there, there was a rule that if you were missing for 42 days uh, in enemy territory, um, that was a ticket home. Wow, okay. He had yep. been gone 42 days. And in fact, there's a sad story about one of the guys he walked out with, um, John Mulvaney, who um, who was only missing for 40 days, went back oh, no. went back into combat and was later killed in action. Oh God! Uh. So um, yeah, that 42 days was important. So there was a marriage due once he got back to the states. How did that all go down? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Uh, my my parents had been engaged uh, during training, and and again the uh, the uh, the proposal was by letter, and the acceptance was by letter. Um, and uh, he got he gets shot down once, and uh, the first time, and uh, my mother writes to him and says basically, Could, couldn't you have brought your parachute back? I'm I'm there's no material here in the states for wedding dresses, and and apparently it was a fad at the time, where that if you could get. Uh, if you got shot down or you're a paratrooper, you could get your hands on, on a parachute that, that people were making uh, wedding dresses out of out of uh, the nylon in parachutes. Uh, they talked about hitting the silk, but it, it wasn't silk uh, after, uh, you know, J Japan attacked us because the silk was coming from Japan. It was nylon, right. newly invented nylon, and it was scarce. Everything was, uh, you know, going into war production. So, um, so my father joked that he had to get shot down the second time. <laughs> uh, to get the parachute, and uh, he carried that parachute all the way across Yugoslavia. The parachute was uh, what uh, was the only blanket he had, basically, as 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 he uh, slept in those cabins uh, as he walked across Yugoslavia. And uh, so it, it it saved his life when he jumped. It saved his life while he was traveling, and then he uh, his bride got married in it. What happened with some of the other airmen uh, after the war ended? They, um, you know, they're a mixed bag, uh, like like any group of people. Some of them uh, suffered uh, from PS, from post-traumatic stress syndrome, no doubt, and um, and uh, suffered with that. Some of them had been injured and uh, had to recover from their injuries. Um, some of them uh, did quite well in life, and some of them didn't. Um, uh, there's a 
a paragraph in there where I rattle off the names of, of uh, I don't know, maybe two dozen of these 84 men that, that were in town um, and the, who all died before they could collect Social Security. So you have to think mm -hmm. that the, that the uh, rigorous um, you know, suffering that they went through uh, had a long-term impact on their lives. Yep, true of so many of them. Indeed. Are there any of the lost airmen still alive? There are three of them still alive. Uh, I'm in contact with all three, uh, one in Louisiana, one in uh, Florida, and one in Massachusetts. And they're all quite sharp and, uh, and just great guys to talk to. And their names? Oh, well, there's Powell Robinson is in um, uh, near Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Joe Photo is near uh, New Orleans. And William Clark is in Naples, Florida. I've got friends in Naples. Nice area. Beautiful area. Is there anything we can take from uh, their experience that we can apply today? Yeah, I, to me, it's, it was all about service. You know, the, these men were literally servicemen. They, they thought of themselves as, as having to do a job and get back to their regular life. Some of them ended up as, as career officers, but, but I, don't, I don't think any of them started off uh, intending to be career officers. And none of them thought of themselves as heroes. Uh, none of them were were self-serving. They um, they did a job and uh, and came home. And you know we can call them heroes. None none of the guys I've interviewed forty guys. None of them would call themselves heroes. None of them. Yeah, they always tend to say it's the heroes. The, those are the guys we left behind. Certainly, absolutely. Well, we've been talking today with Chuck Stanley Jr. about his about his brand new book, Lost Airmen: The Epic Rescue of World War II U.S. Bomber Crews Stranded Behind Enemy Lines. Fantastic story and a great read. I recommend all of you pick it up. That's Lost Airmen by Charles E. Stanley Jr. And Chuck, thank you very much for your time today. Appreciate it and enjoyed very much this time talking with you. Thank you.